Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto and a 50% discount on a one-year subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any new ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Vivian Gornick. We spoke about her classic book, The Romance of American Communism, first published in 1977 and recently reissued to wide acclaim by Verso Books. Today's interview is a little bit unusual in some respects. To my mind, Vivian's book on American communism is, uh, is really fascinating, often very moving and, and nuanced in the way that it reckons with both the appalling authoritarianism and slavish adherence to the Stalinist line of the American Communist Party, whilst at the same time showing the very profound and enlivening effect communism had on working class members of the party, who were often deeply engaged in labour struggles that, whether one is communist or not, were extremely important and admirable. The reissue of the book has been extremely well received, and it's been glowingly reviewed in venues such as The Nation and The Boston Review and The Guardian, However, having interviewed Vivian and and having read the new introduction to the book, I'm not certain how much uh, Vivian would agree with those glowing assessments. As you'll hear in the interview, she has to some extent come to agree with some of the harsher critics of the book who accused Vivian in 1977 of whitewashing the record of American communism. So it leaves me in the in the slightly strange position of perhaps being uh, rather more enthusiastic about wanting listeners to pick up the book uh, than the author of the book herself. Vivian Gornick is a writer and critic whose work has received two National Book Critics Circle Award nominations and been collected in the Best American Essays 2014. Growing up in the Bronx amongst communists and socialists in the 1930s, Gornick became a legendary writer for The Village Voice, chronicling the emergence of the feminist movement in the 1970s. Her works include the memoirs Fierce Attachments, The Odd Woman and the City, and her classic text on writing The Situation and the Story. I began the interview by asking Vivian to describe her upbringing in the Bronx in the 1930s and 40s. I was raised in a working-class neighborhood in the Bronx, almost entirely Jewish. However, most people, and it was like a little microcosm of the whole world. There were religious Jews, and there were political Jews, and they were, for the most part, people who had no politics at all, just the way things usually are. We, my family, were known as left-wingers, so we were both admired and stigmatized. 
So when I was eight years old, I already knew that there were people who were horrified by us and people who were sort of proud of us. And I took to the proud part. My brother, interestingly enough, was more influenced by the other part. <laughs> and he, he shrank more from the politics of our home. But I pitched right in. I loved it. And I, from the earliest childhood, I remember being thrilled by these people all around me who I knew had no power in the larger world, but I thought nevertheless were extremely romantic and brave, courageous, and endowed with a a mission. That's essentially how I felt. I always felt proud of being part of that little world. And when you describe people in the community who were, as you say, proud and admiring of the communists, you're not necessarily talking about people who were communists themselves. No, no, not at all. No, these neighborhoods in New York City, the Lower East Side in particular, they were famous for this great mix. There were thousands of people who lived on the Lower East Side of my mother's generation, my parents' generation, who were themselves not political, but they were proud that they, but the socialists were on the street and that there were people among them who were communists. I think in that description in the book, I think one of the things that really comes across is that sense of, of optimism that, that people have, that their power, such as it was in hearing in that, in that sense of being on the right side of, of history and being part of a broader, really sort of global movement. Oh, definitely, definitely. When people like me think back to that, and that's like, 60 years ago, it's remarkable how much, in spite of everything, at the bottom of the bottom was really hope for a different world. One of the things I was struck by was the the description you have of the emergence of, of fascism in, in in Europe, and you talk about how the communists or, or, or socialists as well were sort of looking at the liberals and, and the liberals' kind of confusion and despair and their sense of civilizational collapse, and the communists didn't have that feeling. Whereas I think now, in in a funny sort of way, people who are socialists, much like the liberals, it's quite common to have that sense of of, of political pessimism, although it's not total. I think I think. There is less of that on the socialist left, but it's not that sense of optimism that you describe, I don't think. Not at all. No, no, not at all. That's one very deeply important thing that seems that the 20th century is sort of killed. Do you have a sense of, of some some return of that? I mean, you know, just speaking personally, I became sort of politically aware and active, I suppose, in, in, the, in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And in spite of the manifest horrors of the current period, in, so, in some ways that period seems even more despairing, that sort of period of, you know, there is no alternative and, and, and where there really wasn't a socialist movement to speak of. Well, the reason, as we all know, that the romance of American communism was republished and that it has a following is because of the resurgence of thousands of young people all around the world who are suddenly calling themselves socialists and feel they certainly still feel compelled to get involved in various kinds of political movements that they look upon as progressive. And I'm sort of shocked by that, gratified. I don't see it myself. But I'm willing to go along. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't feel it. But it's very hard here to some, certainly somebody like me to feel it. Especially Donald Trump has been a terrible blow to us. 
a really a terrible blow. And most of the activity against him has been done over these last years by people who themselves were never before political or the young. These are the two elements that have been the most vigorously active. And young women, the occasional incredible resurgence of, at best, you can call it social democracy, like the 2018 elections of all those progressive women in Congress, that kind of thing. That's a thrill. But that's not socialism, much less communism. In fact, it all is an attempt at social democracy. You know, what, what these people want, what everybody wants, they want in. They want back into the democracy. They don't want, they don't want to. They're dissenters. They're not revolutionaries. In the first part of the book, you describe part of your motivation for writing it, and, and you describe some of the memoirs of, of, of ex-communists and, and books on the topic, most famously, The God That Failed. Uh, and, and you talk about what you felt to be the, the serious flaws in that genre of, of, of writing. Could you explain what those flaws were to your mind and, and, and what you hoped to do in the book as, as something of a corrective to that? What that book was all about was a complete denunciation. That was a, a, a denial of, even though the part that I quote from Richard Wright was, in a certain sense, the most honest, in general, well, no, I guess all of them, they, they, they pay lip service to the part that was thrilling, that was moving, that was idealistic, that felt committed to, to uh, mankind, that made people feel larger, everything that I, was, that I talk about throughout the book, my book. But then for the most part, they are crushingly denunciatory. They denounce the whole experience in the style of Arthur Kessler of Darkness at Noon. So indeed felt people like me, when we wrote about this, we felt like we were writing a corrective well, because most of what was written about communism, most of it was about the completely the dehumanizing elements of its authoritarianism. And nobody could hold it in balance. And I didn't hold it in balance either. I performed the same romance. Most of the negative reviews that I received turned exactly on that word that I had written romantically, that I myself was completely ignoring. Well, if you've read the reviews of when it was originally published, you, you know what I mean. They almost all denounced me as a romantic, as somebody who was foolishly denying or ignoring all of the really miserable elements of belonging to the Communist Party. Even though you, you do dwell on those elements quite a lot. I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk about the, the, the trials within the party and, and, and the, the authoritarianism and, and repressiveness of it. Yeah. Nevertheless, the greatest import of the book is that it was a moving and thrilling experience, that it was enlarging, made small lives feel large, et cetera, et cetera. So, and indeed, that is true. That, that is the part that I, that I was concentrating on. I was not concentrating at all on the large political, on the political or the theoretical part of that piece of experience. Not at all. I was doing exactly what they were accusing me of doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, no doubt, err in the sense that I didn't put anything in proportion either. And, you know, I was accused of, of everyone that I, some of the reviews concentrated on, Everyone I described was beautiful and heroic and handsome and 
well-spoken and all the rest of it. When I reread the book this past year, I saw that they were absolutely right. <laughs> Everything, I mean, I never seemed to see any flaws in anything. Everybody was justified. Nobody did any harm. So in that sense, I guess it, it, it was true. I mean, it's a very, it is a very partial picture of what it meant to be any one of those people during that time. But I still stand by it because I still think it is thrilling for a small life to be able to see itself as connected to something large, larger than itself. And I think that is, I do think that is a great thing. <laughs> yes, no, I, I agree. I mean, for, for me, I think one of the most moving af- aspects of, of, of the book is, is, is exactly that. It's what, you know, it's where you're describing, I, I think it's first generation immigrants from, from Europe who in many cases were living in, in the most incredible poverty and, and social isolation. And you describe how communism and the party j- just made it possible for them to develop a sense of themselves merely as, as human beings, you know, as people who could, could act in the world. And, and that, that, is, that is extremely, as I say, I, I found that very, very moving. Oh, glad. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Just going back to the, the, the genesis of, of the book. So although it's not a, a work about feminism per se, although you do talk about feminism and the experience of women in the party specifically quite a bit, but you described the book as being informed by your experience in feminist activist circles in the 1960s and 70s, and that that experience led to something of a, of a re-evaluation of the communists on your part and, and led to your writing the book. So could you explain a little bit about how your feminist commitments and, and experiences in the women's movement led to the writing of the book? Well, okay. The women's movement of the 70s and 80s, late 60s to, through the 80s, which is called the second wave, of which I was a part, those years were years of the romance of feminism, the romance of American feminism. In other words, those were years in which thousands of women suddenly experienced themselves as visionaries, we suddenly saw ourselves just the way the communists, just the way anybody who became attached to socialism, Marxism, any of that view of life as a, as a thrilling rebuttal of the forces, of, um, of forces that ground life down rather than raised it up. So those of us who were early feminists, we immediately saw ourselves in a large way in culture, in history, in political and cultural custom, we just suddenly saw women's position subordinate throughout history, and that was an incredible eye-opener. That was an experience that drew people together. Everyone saw the same thing and was excited, exhilarated by seeing it. And then very quickly, political factions began to form inside of that. Now, you see, seeing things like that, is a piece of consciousness that's floating in a world without supports, so to speak. You don't have a party. You don't have a manifesto. You don't have a set of rules. You don't have the organizations that are ruling you and holding things together for you. That was the great power of the communists, that they very quickly formed this kind of apparatus that could ground people. We didn't have that. So very quickly, when political factions began to form, people were at each other's throats. And I saw how fast, how quickly the need for dogma had set in. 
and that people couldn't float in the world without that kind of grounding. And it was shocking to me. And on a sudden, I just saw my childhood differently. I saw what the Communist Party had done for them, and I saw what it had done to them. And it moved me greatly. I mean, it, it didn't it didn't disgust me as as enemies of that experience were disgusted. I was deeply moved by everything that they had been up against, that their own need for dogma had undone them, as this was undoing us. Now, of course, the American feminist movement turned out to be a really a huge, worldly, world-dominated uh, movement that it never became a party, a manifesto, or so forth. Never, obviously. It just became the obvious. It became a source of changed consciousness in the world. But it made me see what the communists themselves were up against. And this, of course, was our own selves, our own divided selves. The feminists were no, really no better at it. We were lucky not to have a party ruling us. We were really lucky in that way. And so the internecine warfare among feminists, it sort of weathered many decades. And here we are 40 years later with what we have. We've made what we have made, and we haven't made what we haven't made. But we have influenced history, and in the history of the place of women in society and in the world and in the, the long struggles of women to experience their own lives in the way that they want to, We've made a dent in our own free-floating way, and that was it. If I hadn't had the experience of that particular childhood, I don't think I ever would have been able, or, and if I hadn't had the, the dual experience of, of growing up and becoming a feminist, seeing a different version of a movement for social justice at work, I don't think I ever would have written this book. Your experience in that sense seems very different to a lot of the former communists that you interview in the book, who for the most part seem to be pretty alienated from, from the new left in general, whether that's the women's movement or, or, or black radicalism. Primarily, that seems to be related to a view of those movements as dividing the class against itself, or almost as kind of right-wing conspiracies to disaggregate the class, this kind of analysis. Yeah, they were like dinosaurs by then. Any revolution, not their revolution, was no revolution. Many people on the, on the new left, and myself included, certainly as a feminist, we thought they would see us as their revolutionary heirs, as their sons and daughters, but they didn't. All they could do, they were so rigidly attached to their own notion, and that was both the good and the bad of it. The rigidity among old communists was phenomenal. They couldn't see anything other than, than the way they saw it. And that was, a, that was a shock. That was really a shock. As well as the criticism of the new left in terms of, I guess, what would now be called a sort of criticism of, of identity politics to, to some extent. And I think we'd probably both agree that that's a, a wrong-headed form of criticism. But the other side to, to what the old communists were saying was also, it seemed to me, from what you describe in the book, a criticism of an, of an absence of both organisation, but also a, a kind of properly utopian horizon, in a sense. And it seems to me that that's perhaps also what they found alienating about the chaoticness and, 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 and so on. Objectionable, absolutely. Well, it wasn't that. The liberationist movements, as I said before, they clearly were dissidents, not revolutionaries. All of us, for instance, gay, black, feminists, all those, those the great liberationist movements, which were a 
thousand times more effective than the new left, you know, than the left itself. All of these people, they all wanted in. They didn't want to destroy anything. They wanted in. They wanted their share of the promised democracy. The idea that they wanted to overturn a government and actually put in place a socialist apparatus, I've always believed that was a misnomer. I've never really believed that that was what was up for that. That is what it was all about, ever, in the United States, ever but certainly not in our years, certainly not in the years of the new left. And that was very clear. I mean, it was very clear to the old left. The language was not the same. The activities were not the same. The relation among people was not the same. The whole intertwining of the counterculture with the new left was something that had not been seen before. Yeah, the hippies of that time, they were horrifying to the old left. I wanted more respectability. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll were horrifying to the old left, whereas, in fact, they were very useful to the new left, which itself very often denied the presence of the hippies. I mean, everyone was divided about everything, but, in fact, what was going forward was a desire for the, correct, for the, the broken promises of democracy to be fulfilled. I suppose that contrast between the respectability politics of, of the old left is interesting, isn't it? So that's a period where you have people who sincerely believe, whatever they may have been doing, they sincerely believe they were engaging in a project that was aiming towards revolution. At the same time, there was that, as you say, the kind of respectability politics, which wanted them to be seen as, as civilised and not as kind of dissolute or lazy and, and, and so on, which obviously contrasts very sharply with the, with the, the hippies who in, in some ways embraced that kind of perspective. Yes, of course. The hippies were, in a certain sense, latter-day modernists. The modernists at the turn of the 20th century, both politically and socially and culturally, all of that, that was a revolution in consciousness. And so were the 60s and 70s. And that, that was a twin, a twin movement. I was never in the counterculture. I was horrified like everybody else, <laughs> like me. <laughs> but I saw its power. I understood what it was doing, and I didn't deny its power, whatever. You know. I mean, I couldn't join it. I wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But... I saw the meaning, real meaning of the wildness, beneath the wildness, the explosion, the wanting to explode a, an ossified consciousness. That was a thrilling thing, and it coincided with the liberationist movements. So that's how I look upon that, that whole period and everything that emerged from it, both to the good and to the bad. Thinking about the contemporary reception of the reissue of the book, I wonder if part of the appeal is to do with that, the misrecognition and, and, and the lack of sympathy between the new left and, and the older communists. And that many leftists today, even if they don't necessarily have a kind of communist perspective, they would like to square the circle of organisation. And I think a lot of leftists today are very critical of the horizontalism and sort of anarchist inflected politics of, of the left of the 90s and 2000s, maybe. And, and there's a desire to, to both have the organisation, but also to, to have a kind of rigorously feminist and also black politics at the same time. That is true. It is a, it's a source of, um, of conflict and frustration. But it's too late. <laughs> it just can't happen. Yes, indeed. There is a yearning 
essentially, no matter what anybody says, for hierarchy. For I mean, the great thing about the Communist Party, both the great thing and the terrible thing, is the longing for authority. The longing on the part of millions of people to be told what to do and to, but that's gone. It's gone forever. It's that's the meaning of 20th century consciousness, and. It has achieved what it has achieved, and it has destroyed what it has destroyed. Yes, indeed. That's why it's so hard to say with any kind of um, of authority, even though that authority would always prove itself false. But to have a sense of authority at the, at the moment that one is speaking, and to say that clearly if we follow this line and this line and this line, we can predict the outcome. But there is no line to follow anymore. Towards the end of the book, you interview a man by the name of Anthony Aaron Price, although I presume that's a pseudonym. Yeah, yeah, they're all pseudonyms. He makes a comparison between communism and the life of Martin Luther, the central figure of the, the Protestant Reformation. And you also interviewed Karl Marzani under the pseudonym of, of Eric Lanzetti. And, it, and he makes a similar sort of comparison regarding Marxism and, and, and Sigmund Freud. Could you say something about the comparisons they were making? And also why you found Marzani's politics to be particularly admirable. You describe him as, as, as being the most integrated of the, of the communists that you spoke to. Yeah, I know. I certainly wouldn't say that today. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is interesting because reading that, I was thinking, yes, this is more or less what I believe. But I did wonder, is this what Vivian believes? <laughs> <laughs> no. He was a very romantic figure to me, Marzani. I got very close to him. And I was always thrilled and horrified by him. But I let the thrill part influence me more than the horrified part. He was really it. He was the essence of everything that one could love and hate among the communists. He really was a true believer, and he was very thrilling often for what he felt and the way he felt it. And yes, he was the kind of man who would certainly, for Arthur Kessler, he could have been one of those communists who gladly sent anyone up to the firing squad if he thought he was a counter-revolutionary, right? And on the other hand, that very same figure in somebody else's hands could seem very romantic, that he was laying down his life for the revolution. And it was always how you saw those things. These people, when I listened to them then, I chose to see them in a wholly positive light. But I can easily see how you could repeat those same words and use them in bitterness to show how, and I think probably, certainly today, I would not... I would not have written of them as I did. But I'm not sorry I did, if you know what I mean. I wouldn't have written that book today, but I'm not sorry I did write it. And that's because of a lot of other living, not just having lost my devotion to a romantic ideal, which I have. But the fact of the matter is, this was American communism. None of these people were ever put to the test. Nobody was ever in a position to put anybody else to death. It was, in a certain sense, and of course Moscow, I'm sure, always felt this, American communists are among the most innocent of all communists in the world. They never came up against, remotely, they were never anywhere near in a position to, to do even what the Italians did. You know, you read, you read Saloni, and it has a different feel altogether. I mean, that was, when you read Saloni, you're in the presence of an Italian communist 
who held his own against Moscow, his sorrow is hard-earned. And you feel that in every word he wrote, not in any American communist. So a lot of it was bravado. A lot of it was bravado. I don't really know what Karl Marzani would have done if he had actually been in in a position of power and there had really been a revolution or anything remotely like it. Moscow never trusted the American communists for exactly this reason. Yes, although I I suppose Moscow didn't trust many people, I I guess. Communists at all, period. (laughs) That is true. I suppose what I found appealing, I mean, particularly regarding what Anthony Ehrenpreis says about Martin Luther, you know, this point he makes that, okay, Martin Luther was was kind of a monster, but would anyone want to live in a, in a world in which Luther hadn't lived and, and the Reformation hadn't happened? And it reminded me of a, of a, a line in a book by the historian S.A. Smith on the communist revolution in, in Russia. And he's a very, not at all squeamish about being very honest about what the, the Bolsheviks did and, and, and the violence of the situation and, and the violence that communism was, was responsible for. But I think an interesting comparison he makes is with, with, is with the French Revolution. And, and, it, and it's to say, if one looks at the early phases of, of the French Revolution, what do we see? We see? We see the terror, we see violence, we see, we see war. But Whatever else one thinks of the French Revolution, it did effectively kill the idea of the divine right of kings, and and perhaps is you know is is, is that one way to think of communism in the long term that it has put the question of of the rule of capital put that question centrally, and that we're still grappling with that, and and we do you believe that's true? I I, I do, but <laughs> I don't. You do? I don't. I really don't. I don't. On the contrary. I think, no, it did not do, it did not do that. It did not make most of the world. It made all of those who suffer horribly from being in the wrong class, the wrong sex, the wrong race. It made all of that more acutely visible, perhaps, or it helped to. But it certainly did not, it did not dissuade anybody on the cruelties of capitalism, really successfully. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe it did that. I mean, that it, that it really discredited uh, capitalism. It made everybody who hates it more bitter, perhaps, but it didn't, it didn't provide a, a betterment. It did not provide a system that you could believe in. It didn't demonstrate at all what socialism could or should have done. Did it? No. No, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't dispute that. I, I suppose it's not. I'm, I'm not suggesting that communism, 20th century communism, provided any models to follow necessarily, but rather at least posed a question that perhaps wasn't there to the same extent beforehand, and raised the possibility not for a very broad public, but for a significant number of people. And I suppose I optimistically, I like to think it's still early days. Okay, go with it. <laughs> Be my guest. <laughs> Yes, the critique of of capitalism certainly is made brilliantly again and again and again. But it doesn't, I don't think it offers hope. I don't think so. Anyway, you know, what do I know? I am just a writer who, I really, the idea that I have political wisdom is is a joke to me. I'm just shooting my mouth off here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you have to realize that. That's all anyone's doing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.